Hello, hello, it's Sunday, and you're listening to Twisted Wicked Crime with me, Christina. Warning, this podcast contains material not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Listener discretion is advised. Hello there. I did a thing. Did you notice? (laughs) I switched up my intro again. I've been wanting to change it. So I changed the song last week, but I feel like that didn't just quite do it for me. I wanted to do something completely different and I'm feeling this one, guys. I think I'm going to stick with it for a long while. So I am going to give a warning because I, at the beginning of each episode now, even if it's not even super, super bad, I feel like I tend to do that in the middle of when something bad is happening. And that's great. I'll still kind of give that to you. But I do want to just on the front half of somebody has not listened to true crime before and they happen to stumble upon my podcast, I do want them to know I use foul language. I talk about nasty details. So I do want to give that warning at the beginning of each podcast. And I was like, how do I tie that in? And yeah, this is what we did. So I'm going to, you know, play around with it, but uh, this is going to stick. So anyway, how is everyone? Are we good? Did we make good choices last week? I am recording this on Saturday morning. It's just a little after 9 a.m. I usually, you know, record this on Friday nights after my daughter goes to bed and I have my beer but for the love of God, the devil got a hold of me last night. I think I had some food poisoning, so I was not upright um, at all. And you would not want me to pause this to go to the bathroom. So anyway, I am feeling much better today. And since it is the morning, I am drinking some coffee. Cheers to the morning people who drink coffee. <sighs> I just had to take a sip so you know I did. I'm usually a... Uh, black coffee girl all the way when I make it at home and or at work. But I love me some Starbucks and it's expensive. I can't go there every day. So I've been feeling on the coffee creamer, guys. And I found this new one, brown butter chocolate chip cookie. Oh my heaven. Yeah. Anyway, for my coffee drinkers out there, I think it's Coffee Mate that makes it. So go get you some. All right. So last week I brought you a curse. And I'm still on the fence with that one. But, you know, I might have a treat for you all next week. I might have two episodes. We'll see. We'll see. All right. So let's get this episode underway. I think I've rambled on enough. This is a wild one. As you know, we are going to talk about a survival and an amazing woman named Holly K. Dunn. We know she survives the railroad killer. We talked about him not last episode, but the episode before. If you haven't listened to the railroad killer episode yet that I did, that is perfectly okay. You don't need to. You can listen to this first and then go back to that. But I would recommend you listening to that railroad killer episode first that I did. So you can kind of see a full picture of what this monster of a guy is and how truly amazing it is that she survived. I'm astounded by her. I'm so inspired by her. 
it's like, how can one move on from this? Now, she wrote a book, as I mentioned in the Real World Killers episode, and her book is called Soul Survivor, The Inspiring True Story of Coming Face-to-Face with the Infamous Railroad Killer. And I've been wanting to read this ever since the coming across the Railroad Killer and knowing that she survived. I was fortunate enough to find um, excerpts from that book when I was researching, so I can give you some direct quotes or some things that were definitely said from that book, um, which is very cool. But I do want to read it as a whole because it just sounds so amazing. So let's talk about Holly. She grew up in Evansville, Indiana. Hey, go Colts, go, 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 go. Colts are actually pretty decent this year. Yeah. Anyway, getting off track. Coffee, guys. It's good. When she was younger, she was already kicking ass at life. She was an awesome little girl. And I really couldn't find much on her or her boyfriend, um, like how they were growing up. But at the time, I did find some good things. And that's what's important, right? She was determined, and it wasn't just a dream, that she wanted to be the first female president. She could have um, probably done that if she pursued this after what happened. She has a lot of spirit and heart. And for her to write down her story is just like, wow, that takes some strength. So if she went after this goal of being the first female president, I'm sure she would have been it. And you'll see why. The day she was attacked, she lost the person she cared for most in the world at this time. It was her person. She lost him in the most horrific way right in front of her. You already know some of it as I said it in the Railroad Killer episode, but I just was in that moment. So we're going to talk about a tough case today, guys. It's a nasty one. But you know, there's good at the end, so let's keep that in mind. Holly mentioned also that she carried on his legacy and that she's just putting good out in the world for him. She's married today and very happy, but she carries her love for him with her at all times. You know, that's horrific thing that takes place is like, I would hold this person close to me too, because he's an amazing human being too. And they were just for each other love. And I'm happy for her that she's remarried and we'll get more into that later. Now, this horrific thing takes place on August 28th, 1997, when news stations were trying to tell the story of how it was back in 1997 when interviewing her. They said it was the era for Biggie and Puff Daddy. Right on, girl. Holly was like, yeah, those are great, but I was listening to Ben's Fold 5 and Bare Naked Ladies at the time. I'm a bit of a rocker chick especially back in the day. I loved my pop music. I loved me, my Britney, my Backstreet Boys. My walls were actually covered, but I loved my Eminem. But I was actually more alternative. I loved Tool, Deftones, um, Linkin Park. I was all into that. So I really wasn't into Ben's Fold 5 or um, Bare Naked Ladies. They were okay, but they weren't my cup of tea. But um, Holly seems like a freaking one of a kind badass girl. Like, okay, those were fine, but I was listening to this. Like she knew what she wanted. Anyway, give me my Brittany, right? In 1997, she was a junior at the University of Kentucky. 
She was majoring in accounting, where she later switched to finance. She was a member of the Kappa Kappa Gamma sorority. Oh, all great stuff. And this is amazing. She really wanted to follow her father's career footsteps through the hotel business. And I don't know why that seems so adorable to me. And I can see why. He was a highly successful businessman, but he was also there for his family. He always made sure he had plenty of time to spend with them, and he still got his job done. And that's what she wanted as well. At this time, she was newly dating a guy named Christopher Mayers, and I hope I said his last name right, who she really, really liked. The two met in a bar, which was called Buffalo Wild Wings and Wreck. No, it's not that Buffalo Wild Wings, which mm, chicken wings sound good, even though it's 9 a.m. I haven't had breakfast yet. My hair is wet. I got a clean house. Might go to Walmart later. It's a thing. It's a Saturday thing, you know? Now, this is a little dive bar, and it's just a group of her and her friends, and then another group of some of the college guys, because this was near the campus. The night that she met him, they were celebrating her best friend and roommate's Annie's 21st birthday. It's funny, too, how they actually met. She was talking to another guy when Christopher walks over, and as she's talking to him, he interrupts and says, hey, we have the same toes. What a fantastic pickup line. And side note, just, I know I'm getting on tangents here, but I hate feet. They're gross. But like, what a great line. Now, I don't know why I'm having like froggy throat right now. I'm sorry, guys. How could you not talk to him? And she was actually like, what the fuck? He's like, no, we do. Look. And she had sandals on. And she was wearing silver nail polish on her toenails, which she always did. This was like her thing. And he also was in sandals because it was summer. And this is hilarious. He too also had silver nail polish painted on his toes. Oh my God, stop it. I love it. I'm seriously like that's the best pickup line. They both have silver. Like how meant to be are these people already off the bat? Christopher Mayer was 21 years old, and he was also a junior at the University of Kentucky. He was really close to his parents, Tom and Ann Mayer. He was also best friends with his older sister, Elizabeth. They were very close. They overall were just a super close family with each other. He was a member of Phi Cap Psi fraternity, and he sounds awesome because he was majoring in lighting design in the theater department. That is really cool, actually. He was very tall at six feet, five inches, which I thought my husband was tall. He's like six foot, six one. (laughs) And even Holly said when he walked over, she was like, ooh, hello. Uh, Her and her friends leave. And even her friends in the car that night were asked, like, who was that really tall guy? He was cute. And you guys, he was a cutie. You know, I'm going to post pictures. But Holly's like, no, fuck off. He's mine. I don't know if she really said that, but that's how I'd be. I'd be like, back off, ladies. He's mine. I saw him first. They all ended up inviting him and his friends to go to a party at their apartment the following evening. Now, this party was for her roommate and best friend for her birthday. They decided, yeah, we're going to go. Nice, right? The night of the party was at their place, like I said. 
Holly and Chris spent most of the entire evening just talking to each other. Oh, they bonded right away. And that just, when you, when you hear everything that happens, it just hurts my heart in so many ways. The party was getting a little loud and they really wanted to talk. So they decided to take a walk together so that they could better get to know each other. Just stop it. Like we know what happens as we heard the railroad killer episode, but just take my heart out of me right now. Okay, please. This is when they both found out that they had similar families, similar upbringings, and that they were very close with their older sister. Holly's sister, Heather, was only 18 months older than her, and they were almost like twins, which made them very close. She said Heather is her rock, and when everything went down, she was the one that she wanted to rescue her. They said you can have one person in the room with you when all this was over. And she was like, I want my sister. I need my sister. They were vibing with each other. And they both had Catholic upbringings, close with families, and both grew up in the Midwest. Holly said one of the things that she loved about Chris immediately was that he had a lot of women in his life that he loved and had respect for. Not only that, he was close with all of them. Chris actually had two female roommates, so it was just him and them. And it wasn't anything like romantic like that. They were just close and he, like I said, respected them. And that's actually why his toenails, excuse me, his toenails were painted silver. He, (laughs) they wanted to, like, they, I guess they went up to him and were like, hey, Chris, we want to paint your toenails silver. And he's like, yeah, go ahead, whatever, which is totally cool. That's just chill and cool. Chris was a huge outdoors person. He loved hiking and biking And he had that like hippie type vibe going on with him. He just loved walking around barefoot. He wore homemade necklaces. And on top of that, he was also an artist. His apartment was covered in his own creations. Holly said if it was raining, he would be her sunshine. And if it was sunny, you could catch him flying kites in the wind. I just love him so much. Now, he had this infectious smile. He was just all happy all the time. People would say he was one of the best. He would, like, people would gush about him even after this happened. Now, there was a time when they were alone on the couch, and he pulled out a a piece of paper, and he said, let's make art together. And she said, I don't know how. He said, just do it. And they came up with this colorful painting together. And I'm picturing that. I'm picturing like when you see their pictures, you can just picture them on the couch doing that. And it's so freaking sweet. Like I said, Chris is a total hippie and I love it. They seemed perfect for each other. This was her soulmate who was taken from her by a monster. And yes, I said soulmate because they were two peas in a pot. He always put Holly first and would think of her all the time. Like, even passing by a vending machine, he saw this, like, daisy cheap ring in there. And he was like, Holly would love that. And he got it for her. They were just so in sync with each other, so in love. And you can tell they were. And I hate this so much that this monster had to take that away from them. So, on the 
Evening of Thursday, August 28th, 1997, Chris and Holly plan to go to a party off campus on Suburban Court in Lexington, Kentucky. His fraternity was having the party, and they were both excited. They have been planning this date for a few days and just like, yeah, this is going to be the best. They even had plans to have a picnic that following mid-morning on Friday, and they had everything ready for it. Holly was super excited. It was a new love and the excitement when dating a new person, you guys, we've all been there. I still get those butterflies from my husband. Like I've mentioned before, we've been together 20 years, but I feel like that, like he went off this morning and so my daughter's here. So I apologize if you hear Bluey in the background or door shutting and stuff because she tends to do that. Um, or if I have to say, excuse me for a moment because she's interrupting me. Um, but I will get butterflies when he walks in. Excuse me. I got to take a sip of my coffee. So Thursday evening when he picked her up, this is so funny and just can tell you what type of a person he was. He had a megaphone mounted to his car and when he pulled up, he called out for her to, to her house. I'm sorry. That is just awesome. I don't know how I would feel about that in the moment, but they had spent some time together. So she just knows that's his personality. Now they headed out to the party and they had a really nice time. The party was starting to wind down and they were just kind of getting a little bored. Um, at this point, it was a little after midnight. The home of the party was near a railroad track, the Norfolk Southern Railway. Chris used to live in that house and he tells Holly, since they both were bored, that when he lived there, he used to take walks along the railroad track. He said he loved watching the trains rail by. He asked her if she wanted to leave with him and walk it. And she was like, hey, that sounds great and so sweet and romantic. So heck yeah, I would love to. As I mentioned in the Railroad Killer episode, I live right by a railroad track too. I live like Mm, for three minutes from a railroad track. I can actually hear the train at night um, when the freeway's quiet. I would never walk right up against it. No, the freeway's right there, and there's some scary things at night, I'm sure. <laughs> like, I would never. I don't live in a bad area of town at all. Don't get me wrong. We usually live really close to the railroad track, and it's right up against the freeway. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it, no. But, you know, these two, they're doing it, and they are loving it. Chris's two friends, Ryan and Mike, were like, hey, can we join you? If I was Holly, I'd be like, no. But Chris is such a nice guy. He said, yeah, and they joined him. And I'm, like I said, I'm sure Holly was like, no, I really want to go alone with Chris. But anyway, Chris brought a backpack with him as they went to the tracks. It contained a six-pack of beer that he brought to the party. Hm. Typical college kid, backpack of beer. Nice. They were all hoping to see some trains and have some beer. But after 30 minutes, no trains had come by. So it was very lame. It was also really dark. And they all had just been hanging around doing nothing. So Mike and Ryan said, we're going to go head back to the party and leave from there. You guys enjoy your night and do whatever. Chris just wanted to walk alone with Holly. Still along the track. He really liked her and she really liked him. They're having this nice stroll, holding hands, talking. 
And I'm sorry, it sucks they didn't get more of this. Then they were like, okay, let's go back to the party now. It's getting late. They had begun walking back to their car um, so they could go home. As they head back down the tracks, they pass by a large electrical box on the right side of them. Keep in mind, there is hardly any lights as it is pitch blackout. As they approach, a man appears out from behind it. Oh, my God. In that moment, I would be so freaked out. And it was obvious he had already seen them walking by because he was crouched down waiting for them. He just stood there in front of them on the tracks, and he asked, where'd your friends go? Not only did he already see them and had been watching them, he knew he had he knew they had two other friends with them. So scary. We all know this is Angel Horrendez as the railroad killer. We know his motive, but just knowing it from this side of the story is just scary. He immediately demands they give him money. Now, Holly, she's so smart. She knew to get a good look at him right away. She said he had olive skin and black wavy hair. And from what she could see in the dark, um, he was wearing plain khaki pants and the same colored shirt. She said nothing stood out to her except his dark, no pupil eyes, which you've seen pictures of him when I posted from the railroad killer episode and the chills are running up me. She nailed it. He was carrying an ice pick in his hand, which Holly didn't notice at first, but Chris did. And this is the start of a terrible nightmare. Chris was being very calm and chill with him because he saw that ice pick. Now remember, Chris is six foot five and Angel is not. So Holly is like in her head because she didn't see that ice pick. She's like, why isn't he going after him? Tell him to fuck off. Well, the guy said, they don't know who he is at this point, but we do. So I'm going to refer him as the guy. The guy said, down on your knees. They both did, and they both tell him, we don't have any cash. They went as far as offering Chris's car keys. Like, take my car, dude. Holly offered her ATM cards. She offered it all to him. And he didn't want any of that. He wasn't there for cash. As we know from the previous episode on him, he just wants to cause torture and pain. It's a game to him. He tied Chris's hands behind his back using the straps from his backpack, and Holly's hands were tied with her own belt. The entire time until he took his last breath, Chris fought for Holly and not himself, but for her. My heart with these types of stories, I just can't take it, and I'm actually glad I'm doing this during the day so that when my husband comes home, I can give him a big hug. He kept saying, please don't hurt her. Please let her go. You can do anything to me, but not her. On repeat, all he kept saying was, you can do whatever you want to me, but please let her go. The guy, Angel, our attacker, kept screaming at them to shut up, told them, stop looking at my face. He seemed very agitated and almost annoyed. He started pacing back and forth, very anxious. Then he ended up dragging Chris away along the ground that was covered with broken glass and rocks. Uh, Holly wanting to get to Chris because she wants to save him too, right? 
she's following him on her knees. Ouch, ouch, ouch. I can't, oh, my knees hurt. As she's doing this, she was able to loosen the belt holding her hands behind her back. As I said, Holly is a quick thinker and how she survives this is not anything I would. And I would not think of anything in a moment like this. She loosened it and she has been following them on her knees and working to get the belt off. Also, she's thinking, how do I help get out of here? What can I leave behind? Her quick thinking with this, trying to see his face at the beginning and like now this, like what can I leave behind? She knows that. He now throws Chris into a ditch next to a fence. And then he sees Holly and he makes both of them lay down in the small ditch next to each other. Then he screamed at them to be quiet. He tells them, don't try and go anywhere. I have a friend with me. And he left to go get something, but he will be back. So don't try to go anywhere. He is out there. He then ran back to the electrical box and he did this several times. He had a bag back there. And at one point looked like he was ripping fabric. They both were like, what the fuck is he doing? But while he is, they're trying to come up with some sort of escape plan. He is so quick going back and forth that they can't come up with a plan that makes sense. He comes back and ties both their ankles very tightly with whatever fabric he was tearing up. He then takes more fabric and then gags them as he ties it around their mouths. Holly, being smart, stuck her tongue out so that when he tied it, it would be loose. He, when he left, she would be able to pull it down. Like, how does she think of that? She's being the quick thinker and not having much time. He was going like back and forth so quick. And she's like, just thinking of this stuff. It's just crazy to me. She was able to get her hands free and get out. And he comes back and he is pissed that she broke out of the gags. He tells them he just broke out of jail. And they are going to see him on the news. Don't even try to escape. I have a gun and my friend is on his way back. He keeps yelling at Holly to stop looking at him. And then he reties her. He was bothered by her looking at him. And she just stared at him in the eyes. Go girl. She noticed that he had a tattoo of a snake that wrapped around his arm. After she saw this, this is when he left to go back to the electrical box. Chris knew something bad was going to happen now, and he said the last words that he would ever say. And I hope I don't tear up when I read this. He turned to Holly and he said, just stay calm. Everything is going to be okay. Oh, I'm sorry, my phone. I just am like, that just breaks my heart so I'm like trying not to tear up because, okay, get it together, Christina. He returns carrying a massive rock. This rock weighs over 50 pounds. He walked up to both of them and then silently just dropped the rock onto Chris's head with Holly right next to him. And he didn't stop there. He kept picking up the rock and hitting Chris over and over and over and over with it. 
And I don't ever want to know what that feeling's like to be someone you love next to you, in this case, falling in love, whatever, and just witnessing that and thinking, my God, it's my turn next. When he was happy with the fact that Chris was dead, he went on to Holly. He would be, I would be shooting my pants right now. Let's be real. Would we know what to do? No, I wouldn't. But Holly is a badass and she knows what she's going to do. He started to untie her ankles. And so she knew at this moment that he was going to rape her. She fought him so hard. Like she's like, fuck you, blah, 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 blah. I can just imagine her just kicking and hitting as much as she can. Now he took out that ice pick and stabbed her in the neck with it. Then he whispered, see how easily I can kill you. Oh my God. As this happened, she hears Chris make a gurgle sound and she says, can you please just turn his head so he doesn't choke on his own blood? Girl, you were just stabbed in the neck with an ice pick and this is what you're thinking? Calm and collective. This is how much she cared for him. She didn't want him choking. Sadly, he was dead at that point and it was just his body making noises after death, which is crazy to me, by the way. That's always been fascinating. But she wasn't thinking of that in the moment herself. She's just like, don't let him choke on his own blood. This is when he proceeds to rape Holly on the train tracks as the first train in hours went by next to them. That is the scariest thing. Hours. They were there for hours and nobody, no no train went by that could have prevented this. And nobody saw. Oh my gosh. Just, uh, anyway. As he's raping her this whole time, she's ripping her fingernails into him and like pieces off on him and just digging into him, almost pulling the cuticles off her fingers too. She's leaving mark on marks on him and leaving her DNA. As she's doing this, she's also digging into the dirt, leaving her DNA. Smart girl. And as I mentioned in the Railroad Killer episode, when we talked about briefly about her and Chris, she tried to humanize herself which is something that amazes me that in the moment you can think to do this and two, that you are doing this. I would be so far gone and dead at this point. He's thinking is like, like her, sorry, her thinking is remarkable under pressure. As he's raping her and attacking her, she says, my name is Megan. What's yours? Her name's not Megan. He replies with, My name is James Whitford, which we all know he has a bunch of aliases. So this is probably one of them because it just floated out of his mouth. Like it was the thing he said every day. I hate him so much. He's so scary. He's the worst. He then tells her, I won't kill you. She humanizing herself to him as this is happening is what she's hoping for, that if she keeps it up and he will keep his word of not killing her. When he was done, she even convinced him to pull her pants back up for her. He then tells her, my friend has been watching the entire time. He then leaves, but before he does, he takes her earrings and rings off her finger as a trophy, 
which side note, he did not take the daisy ring that Chris gave her from the vending machine. She actually lost that somewhere in the attack. Then he covered, which is, oh, then he covered her and Chris with leaves and branches and just walked away. Holly is in shock and kind of says out loud, or no, she doesn't. She does say out loud, thank you for letting me live. Which, I don't know. After she said this, he came back with a board and started beating her viciously over and over with it, breaking her jaw, fracturing her eye socket, holy shit, and opened wounds on her head that were bleeding bad. She blacked out a couple times and she had said that she didn't even remember feeling pain. She was just like numb at that point. And we know from the railroad killer episode that he was not going to leave her alive. He never leaves his victims alive, except for that one random old man survivor that later died. He walked away to grab something to finish her off. And we know what a monster he is. So he did so for him to leave her, even for a minute, would be a miracle. Um, if you haven't listened to that one yet, like I tell you, you need to go back and listen because he's a fucking monster. Thinking he had murdered her, he just left. Holly was still very much alive because we know he wouldn't leave her if he wasn't, but he thought she was dead. She's coming in and out of cautiousness, but she was alive, thank God. And she could see in the distance a house with a light on. I don't know how she did this, but she mustered up enough strength with a broken eye socket and jaw, wounds on her head, badly beaten, just started walking towards the house. The strength she has, that willpower, the mind that she's in, the right frame, just fighting. She was covered in blood. Her hair was matted in it. She was barefoot. And remember, there's rocks and glass everywhere. She made it somehow to the house and she just walked right in. She didn't even knock. She's just like, fuck it, I'm walking in. Like, wow, she has no inside. Like, no idea who's inside. Who lives there? She's so brave to do this, but she all just she also just went through absolute hell. So she's taken this chance. Thankfully, this was an off-campus student housing and four guys lived there. Only one of them was awake when she walked in. His name was Chad, and he was just chilling in the living room chair doing homework, watching TV. Can you imagine this? Like, being bloody? Like, this being you and this bloody, beat-up girl just walks into your house? But we love Chad. We love Chad. He later said in an interview that he was scared, most definitely, when she walked in, that there might be someone after her and was coming and then he was going to be next. He said that she was screaming and crying hysterically. She was screaming, someone raped me and my friend is still out there. Chad being a hero himself was like, holy shit. She asked him to call 911 and he did. He was trying to get her comfortable, told her sit down. Chad was just being super nice and cool guy. I'm going to say it again. I love Chad. Oh, and at this point, when she walked in and this was happening, it was 2.48 a.m. Can you imagine having a broken jaw and trying to tell this guy what happened? Oh, my gosh, that hurts me. Like, 
oh my god and she's like screaming oh my god that's so painful oh my god my mouth oh take a quick sip of my coffee because i don't know why my voice is all scratchy this morning Okay, as they are waiting for police in the ambulance, he noticed something around her neck and he grabbed scissors. He said, there's something around your neck. Can I cut it off? It was so bloody. It was the gag that she actually got off that he had, that had tightened around her neck. He didn't care that it was bloody or that this might be evidence. He just wanted her comfortable. He said too in the interview when he first saw her, he thought she was going to die. He had never seen anybody in that bad of condition. Police and ambulance arrive, and in the right mind of thinking, Chris tells him, like, where he is. Or and she, in the right mind of thinking, tell, tells them, like, where Chris is. Sorry. She's thinking of Chris this entire time. So she takes them to them, and he goes there, or the police go there, and they arrive and pronounce him dead right there. And that is so heartbreaking. I think a little piece of her believed that he was still alive and over on her own self, over her own self, wanted to check on him. Poor Holly had to go through a rape kit, which is awful. I've never been through it, but I know how intense they are. Her parents were there. They flew in because thankfully they lived a few hours away, but thankfully her dad had a small plane and he was a private pilot. Ah. <sighs> They gave her emergency contraception, which, thank God. Holly had an amazing sense of humor through all, all this, which is, makes me love her more. Um, she, as she's in the hospital going through all this, she would just make jokes. Like when her dad walked in, she would say, Dad, this sucks. And it's like, good for her to use humor to get through it. She ended up getting 16 staples in her head. Her eye was swollen shut and her jaw was being wired shut. She looked very scary. But when her friends came to visit, she would all look at them and say, Oh, I just look like shit. Sweet girl. It was the next day that she was told Chris had been killed, which she already knew. But that just hurt because it just confirms that all that was real. And she was meant to survive 100 per sent. Now police were treating her case as a one-time thing. As we know, she and Chris were not his first victims. Lexington, Kentucky had a pretty low crime rate. So this was huge news and major news. Police thought this was a mugging gone bad, but the brutalness of it all being on by the tracks made them also think that this was a random person, a one-time thing, and they took off. We all know that's not the case. He did so many and true he would take off on the trains, but on to the next kill. Like we already talked about when Holly's case happened, she came forward with this when investigators were piecing the puzzle together in other states. Remember she came forward and they were kind of doing the DNA thing. Like go back and listen to that episode. I'm not going to get into that. You heard it. So you know what I'm talking about. We're in that moment right now. She was interviewed at length when she was pretty much healed and had her rest. She told, I'm going to hopefully say his name right. She told Detective Sorrell, which remember that name from the episode before, <laughs> that 
He dropped the rock onto Chris's head and then repeatedly hit him with it. Detective Sorrell was like, no, honey, he dropped that rock once and it was over 50 pounds. And it was coming from a height and it was just that one blow and that was it. Holly then realized that what she saw that night was happening over and over was just her poor mind playing tricks on her. It was just her reliving over and over that moment in the moment. And my God, that is like the saddest. Oh my gosh. Because of this, they kept asking her, are you sure he was wearing glasses? Because remember she gave him a description. Chris was also wearing glasses that night. So they thought maybe she was getting confused because Chris didn't always wear glasses, but he was this particular night. Now, uh, they thought she was confusing Chris with the attacker who had glasses on. She was insistent, yes, this attacker had glasses. They still weren't sure, but yeah, we know he wore glasses. He was wearing them that night. I don't think Resendez didn't ever have his glasses on. I think I posted pictures of him with his glasses on in court and stuff. I mean, I think his mugshot he didn't, but I think they do that for certain reasons. Remember, he was not caught by anyone at this point, and he's still out there. They had no clue who he is, and the one piece of cloth he used to gag them was a piece of clothing, not his or theirs, but it was a white-colored button-up shirt, which is huge evidence, right? But no clue where to find this guy, nothing. As you remember, he does two more kills after the police learn who he is. It was Holly and Chris that um, he took that little hiatus for almost a year when he was back in Mexico. And I think I, it's like I said before, um, and I'll say it again, that Holly humanized herself and that she was big time news and it was everywhere that he didn't strike again for almost a year later. And I had said that in the killer uh, railroad killer episode. So police in this moment are kind of like at a dead end. Holly and her family thought, well, they lived through fear and they didn't know and they hoped that he hopped on a train and took off. But, you know, they hope he just did that and didn't see Holly get help and that he was waiting to finish the job. They didn't know. Like they hope he just hopped on and didn't see that. They were kind of living in that fear, which I would too. There was no hit on her DNA at this point. Remember, he had all those aliases. So when the fingerprints were being ran from the other crime scenes, it was matching to different people. So they're just hoping that the DNA they pulled from the rape kit will soon have a hit. Poor Holly, too, was living with this immense survivor guilt. She was feeling really bad that every time he walked away that she couldn't get Chris's hands free. She was feeling guilty like it was her fault that they both couldn't get away since his hands couldn't come free. His um, restraints were so tight and entangled that she couldn't get it done fast enough and she felt this is the reason that he is dead. I can't imagine feeling that way and it really hurts my heart. She had some heavy guilt. She ended up finally meeting Chris's parents. She never met them before and why they were dating. I mean, they hadn't been dating that long. She didn't want to meet them. She was super nervous they wouldn't like her or that they wouldn't want to meet her since she survived and their son didn't. 
but it was the complete opposite. They actually helped get her through the guilt that she was having. Hearing how his family was, that doesn't surprise me. Now, both Holly and Chris's families became close. Chris's parents would send flowers and cards to Holly. And there were just two good people, Holly and Chris, that were meant to cross paths and be in each other's lives. Whether it as soulmates in love or soulmates in friendship, they were meant to find each other. Holly, Miss Badass, went back to school after like that. What? I wouldn't. She survived and she said she had a purpose and she needs to live her life. Freaking good for her. She is so strong. Holly even got a part-time job at a sports uh, store type place. She actually did this for Chris because she knew how much she he loved being outdoors and she didn't get to explore enough with him. So she was working there in honor of him and trying new adventures outdoors. Of course, she's still healing. Months are going by and she meets a guy that she works with named Jacob Pendenton. And I think I said that right. They become friends at first and then start dating. He was like the calm after the storm that she needed. He was comforting her and very understanding of what she went through. Now, they did end up breaking up for a while. Holly was still having a really hard time with everything, and she couldn't get past what happened with the rape and just couldn't find herself getting close to Jacob. She tried, but she couldn't. And I totally understand that. That was just months after you're, like, finally killed and stuff. It's all new. Like, that's hard. Holly did eventually find the help she really needed and worked through it so much that she moved into an apartment by herself off camp. Wow, I would not want to live alone. Good for her. She slept with a butcher knife, uh, you know, afraid he was still going to come back and find her. Because at this point, he still hasn't been caught. But she always had people around. And I understand that would be a hard thing to get through, even with help. And she found and worked through it. But she was still a little in fear that he would come back to her, which I totally get. As for Chris's memory, he was so loved that so many people in his life wanted his ashes. So he was split up and given to different friends and family. So many people wanted a piece of him to spread where he loved. It just shows you what kind of person he was, and that's amazing. It took two years for Holly to learn that Angel Resendez was her attacker. Yes, two years. It took two years after her attack to finally get him. Now, if you remember, he lay low for a year, but it was still some time after that and the more murders that he did before he was finally caught. So it ended up being two years after her attack when he was finally caught. And that's just insanity to me. But can you imagine the relief she felt when they came over to her and they said, we have a name. Oh, God, I would just be like, yes. We know he was a very bad man and he had a long list of crimes. But I really wanted to do an episode and Holly highlight Holly and spotlight her and talk about how amazing she is. Um, that's why I didn't really touch base with her and that story um, because I knew she wrote a book and I knew I could find information on that. And I did. And I put, you know, 
I've wanted to just talk about how amazing it is to any of these survivors, right? Like a sip of coffee. I just am like in awe when we ever do a survivor story and to survive a serial killer is just impressive. I've said it before and I say it a lot. I am not a survivor. I want to believe I am, but I would not think of these things that Holly thought of or any survivor. And I love reading about these stories because there are happy endings to murders sometimes. There really is. We have survivors. I think there's a lot more survivors out there than we realize, and I want to try to do more of them. Um, Anyway, let's get back to Holly. I'm getting on a little side note there, but and if you've survived an attack or anything like that, ah, kudos. Like, you are strong and amazing. Holly today is married. And if you're wondering, she did marry Jacob. Oh, they got back together, fell in love, did the marriage thing in 2005. Same. I got married in 2005. They have two boys together. Oh, so cute. And oh, their first son that they had his middle name is Christopher just stop it she's keeping his memory alive Holly has done so much good since this she is a big advocate for self-defense she promotes self-defense and says go to the classes learn how to fight for yourself and get out of situations like that which 100% I carry a gun with me everywhere I go we have guns in the house But what are you going to do in that situation that maybe I can't grab my gun fast enough? Self-defense. I'm telling myself, like, I need to do that. Or in a situation where I can't take my person because, like, you can't take guns in. And, like, what if I'm attacked in a concert? Um, These are things that I was thinking about as I was researching this. Or any survivor case. It always crosses my mind. But anyway, in 2008, she founded a nonprofit called Holly's House in Evansville, Indiana. It provides a safe place for children and adults who were victims of crimes to tell their stories and get connected to resources. It has provided refuge to over 3,000 adults and children. Annually, she gets together with Chris's friends and they call themselves the Life is Good group. And I'm sorry, that is so cool. She has done such good in the world out of all her tragedy that she overcame. Holly is a true badass, and we love Holly. Life is good, girl. Life is good. Whew. I am sorry we had to talk about the railroad killer again, but we talked about the good of the railroad killer, Holly, that Miss Badass. Next week um, is this almost Halloween, guys. Spooky, spooky, spooky. Um, Next Sunday... I am going to bring you a horrifically, horrifically sad case. It involves suicide and kind of a murder. It's a complicated case. But it's very, very, very sad. And I'm going to kind of tell you that on the front half right now. Um, It's very heavily talks about suicide. So... It's a case that when I was researching, I'm almost done with it. I had tears in my eyes that I just wanted to go back in time and help this sweet girl. Um, Anyway, we'll talk more about that next week. 
Halloween is on Tuesday after that Sunday. So I'm going to bring a little treat to your ears. I'm going to do something that I haven't done before. I am going to bring you a bonus episode. Hey, hey, hey. Um, It's still going to be true crime, but it might not be murder per se. Um, It might be a curse. It might be a ghost. It might be witches. I don't know yet. Um, I want to kind of keep it more Halloween related. Kind of keep it a little shorter. Maybe it'll be long. I don't know. We'll see where my heart takes me when I'm writing. Let that hidden flow. Well, I don't ever write it down. I actually type up my stories. Um, When I first started, um, before I started my podcast, I had a Facebook group, which I still have, but I'm just horrible at updating. Um, I actually recorded myself on video. So if you ever want to see what I look like, you can head over to my Facebook page. And I was so amateur about it that I wrote down in a notebook my story so you could hear me and see me flipping the pages. And I was like, girl, what are you doing? Anyway, (laughs) let's just know that we ended an episode on a super happy note. And I feel like we always kind of do, but this is a survivor. Holly, you are amazing. I'm going to go read her book. I think you guys should too. You can definitely find a lot of the information that I found online um, about what she said and stuff, but We love you, Holly. And as always, I hope you – well, actually, first, um, I will link everything – well, not link. I don't know how to link, but I will list all my socials and stuff down below. And I hope everybody stays happy, stays healthy. You make good choices. You make them like Holly. You think hard. You overcome your tragedy. So you make good choices. And you most importantly, stay alive. Bye, guys. I'll talk to you next week. Bye.